Well, good morning to all of you. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, we left off last week in chapter 25. Of course, the start of chapter 25 uh, tells us that Samuel has died. So that is certainly in the backdrop of this text. Uh, again, we're in 1 Samuel, so uh, he, he, it, this is a big deal that he has died. And maybe the, while his person is important, to be sure, maybe what is even more important is this idea of Samuel being the last of the judges and so transitioning into the era of the kings. Of course, you remember from earlier in the text, the people begged to be like the other nations, like the godless pagan nations, and to have a human king. And uh, God, through Samuel, tells them that this is going to be no good for them, that they should not go through with this idea. And yet they request it anyway, and so God acquiesces and gives them what they want through Samuel. And then look how it's gone so far. Very poorly, very poorly, because Saul has turned out to be a terrible king, an antithesis to God and to the heart of God. And again, as a king is described as an anointed one, he is an anointed one as a Christ, Saul becomes an anti-Christ figure. So in, in rejecting the kingship of, of Christ, they receive an antichrist an anti-king. And so, so we've been looking at this, and then God in his, in his uh, mercy and in his compassion uh, through Samuel anoints David. And so now, now within the, the circle of the earthly kingship, you have this anti-king and this true king, this anti-anointed one and anti-Christ versus the true king and true anointed one in David. So we've seen how this plays out. Uh, Saul is just on a downward spiral. Every, every step of the way, it seems like he couldn't possibly get lower, and then he does. Mo the most recent events in the text, of course, he has uh, slaughtered the priests, and he has continued to pursue David, even after David has had Saul's life in his hands. He could have killed him in the cave. Instead, he just cut off a corner of the king's robe. So uh, Saul's pursuit is um, maniacal, almost psychopathic. He uh, continues to pursue David. Really, you can see driven by, driven by Satan. Uh, Satan and his, uh, those who have fallen him, the, uh, those who have followed him, the fallen angels, being behind the, the, the kings and rulers of the earth that are contrary to God and to his people. All right, so all of that's going on in the background. David has more or less been exiled. He's living out in the wilderness. He, in the meantime, he is uh, protecting the shepherds and sheep of a man named uh, Nabal or Nabal. Nabal, of course, means fool. And Nabal acts very foolishly. David, it's a feast, and David sends some of his servants to say, hey, could we just at least have uh, this small token of your appreciation for putting our lives on the line for you, for protecting all your sheep? Nabal, fool that he is, both in terms of the practicality and in terms of just being a, a hospitable person, 
utterly fails. David determines wrongly that he's going to ride in and destroy Nabal. Then we have this beautiful, beautiful mediation on the part of Abigail, uh, who is Nabal's wife. And Abigail takes this wonderful offering and brings it to David as David is riding to destroy all the men, including Nabal. And Abigail intercedes. And you have this beautiful theology that Abigail sees it is the Lord behind her actions. And David sees that it is the Lord behind her actions. And so you've got this just this beautiful conversation about how the Lord has, through Abigail, prevented David from falling into uh, grievous sin, taking vengeance for himself and thus having blood guilt on his hands. Now, I think that what we can see here in a picture, in a type, um, just as we see David as the imperfect type of Christ, pointing us forward to who Christ is, we can see Abigail as an imperfect type of the church. Uh, how so? Well, I think maybe the, the key points that I would see is, uh, is uh, you, have, you have Abigail married to this godless man, which, of course, we by nature are, are married to the godless in one flesh, and... Uh, yet then you see you see David in his wrath wanting to destroy Nabal. You might you might have in, in a type God in his wrath wanting to destroy justly the earth, and you have the intercession of the people, the intercession of the church, which then Christ uh, listens to and has mercy on. Um, if that's pushing things too far for your taste, well then let it go. It's just simply. Uh, simply worth considering the typology that Abigail in some respects might represent the church at its best um, being an, an, an intermediary, one who intercedes for behalf, on behalf of the pagan people around us that God would have mercy on them. And God promises to hear our prayers and he does have mercy on those who deserve it not. And so that's all I'm trying to say. I think that's an orthodox enough point in and of itself, uh, even if I previously didn't articulate it the best. So with that in mind, let's round out this story of Abigail. Um, I think where we left off was verse 32. So uh, let's see where it would be good. Abigail is, ah, yes. She's counting the trespass of, of Nabal as her own. She's very Christ-like in this as well, too. So, you know, maybe that even is the is the proper way to see her as in the role of Christ. Of course, Christ and his church are one, correctly understood. But she says in verse 28, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. That is, God will make you, David, a sure house, because uh, my Lord, namely you, David, my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Well, if only that were true. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God that is kept safe by God himself. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good 
that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. You know, there's the key. She has, she has uh, by her godly, humble action, and we're going to see even more humility on her part, by her godly, humble action, she has uh, kept David from having uh, grief, from having pangs of conscience later on over what he's going to do. This is David whose conscience is so sensitive um, that he even feels badly about cutting the corner of the king's robe off because that's the Lord's anointed. How much worse would he have felt after the fact, uh, knowing that he has uh, Nabal's blood and, and the blood of his men on, on his hands? So this is a wonderful thing that Abigail has done. Verse 32, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. So again, here's, here's David. Um, she has, Abigail has already seen the Lord acting in and through her, and now David sees the Lord acting in and through her as well. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. So David acknowledges he was on his way to commit grievous sin and uh, to act inappropriately. And God, through her, spared him from this. And again, you, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't just simply point out that Abigail is, I mean, not only can you see her in, in, in certain respects as a type of Christ, as a type of the church, you also see her as just the, the preeminent woman. And from time to time, you see this in the text of Scripture. Um, you, see it, you see it in, in episodes with men, in episodes with David, whereas you also have the counterparts in David's sinfulness, etc. Um, but, but there are certain females that are presented in Scripture and presented in such a way that they just embody the, the female virtue and the strength of God made perfect in weakness. And you can see that in that, I mean, she does what Nabal and his men could not do. Nabal and his men could not prevent David with their strength. But with Abigail's weakness, her bringing the gifts, her bowing before, before him, her humble spirit, her discretion, as this verse says, and her approach toward David, her, her words. And it's all spoken in lowliness and humility. The humility of Abigail is more powerful than the arrogance of Nabal. There's one comparison, perhaps even more glorious. The humility and weakness of Abigail is stronger than the strength and rage of David. So he's got 600 armed men bearing down with you know, vengeance on their minds, and she overpowers the entire army herself with her humility. Behold the strength of woman. You know, God makes men and women different, and he makes our strengths different. And here embodied, you know, the quest, the quest of modern feminism is such a failed quest because it Feminism is really anti-feminine. I mean, that's the deepest I, I, irony of it, is feminism asserts that in order to have power, you have to be just like a man, which is completely sexist. 
completely sexist. The, God makes male and female very different. And the power of female indeed overcomes the power of male, as we see in this text. But the power of female is precisely counterintuitive. Her strength is made perfect in weakness. It's exactly what Paul says of himself and says of the church and says of Christ. Um, it is specifically this aspect of femininity um, that is embodied. It's where um, a wife with her good conduct and her uh, kind and humble words turns her husband, whereas with, you know, if she attacks him head on, good luck, that's not going to happen. So uh, Abigail embodies the feminine and the strength of uh, woman. And again, that, that strength of woman and man, the two are one flesh, and in that one flesh union, that's the fullness of Christ and um, the fullness of the man from heaven. So it's no surprise then that we see these that perfect strength of both male and female as I've been distinguishing them. We see both of these strengths embodied in Paul, embodied in Jesus, embodied in the church. All right, uh, well, then on to verse 34. David is in the middle of his answer to Abigail. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, Truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. You know, just beautiful. And even if you're not completely convinced of the, of the themes that I've brought up and the typology that I've brought up, at least just take a look at this language and see that there's hints and subtleties of it. I have obeyed your voice, David says. I have granted your petition. Verse 36, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Now there's an irony because David truly is anointed to be king. And here's a man who is not, and he's acting as though he's a king. So there is that comparison. And we see here yet one more theme. It's, it's kind of hard to, hard to remind ourselves of this, but all the way back at, at Samuel and through the first few chapters, this was laid down as such a heavy foundation. And we've seen it all the way throughout. Uh, predominantly in the past few weeks, in the past number of chapters, Saul, who is mighty, is cast down. David, who is lowly, is lifted up. And now, once again, we have that theme with Nabal and David, uh, whereas David is poor and needy and has nothing. He's now been enriched by Abigail, so he who is lowly is brought up. Nabal, who is feasting as a king, is going to be brought down. And so we, we see those themes uh, so inherent in the Magnificat, so inherent in the preaching of Jesus, uh, again, continued throughout this text. So Abigail returns and finds Nabal feasting like a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, just picking up at verse 36, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. Good move. Good move. I mean, if he is drunk, who knows? He would have been thrown into a rage, and who knows what would have happened. In the morning... When the wine had gone out of Nabal, I think that's probably a good way of saying he might have been a little hungover. 
his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. Now that's an odd expression. Um, the study note simply says, he died of pure shock. Um, and then it also says to confer with Ezekiel 36.26, which suggests that this speaks also of Nabal's spiritual death. Yeah, who knows? Gregory says, to a mind that is drunk with fury, every right thing that is said appears wrong. Whence to Nabal, when he was drunk, Abigail laudably kept silence about his fault, but when he had digested his wine, she as laudably told him of his fault. He could for this reason perceive the evil he had done, that he did not hear of it when drunk. Uh, thus far, Gregory. So, with that information in mind, suffice it to say that uh, Nabal did not take the news well, and it is actually through the delivery of this news that God's judgment falls upon Nabal. So his heart died within him, and he became as a stone, verse 38, and about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So it seems that he has some kind of major medical thing happen to him that basically spells out his doom and his death. You know, and there's a, there's a sense in which God's good creation is wedded to the evil one, Nabal embodying Satan. And God strikes, God strikes Nabal, God strikes Satan on the cross. And just as Nabal is as good as dead, but is alive technically for 10 more days, so Satan, is, his heart is pierced through, he's struck on the cross, and he's as good as dead right up until the end of the world. So there are some parallels there, and and she, that is God's good creation, who had been married off into to this evil man, God's good creation married off to Satan because we said in the garden, I do, to his proposal. Now we are redeemed and reconciled by our God just as Abigail is to be by, well, is by God and is to be by David. So you can see these themes in these parallels. Uh, again, they're, like all typology, they're hardly airtight. There's themes and reflections. Um, that one can see and ponder and meditate on in what ways it's fitting and what ways it's not. All right, uh, the long and the short is Nabal is dead by the hand of God. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. So again, here, vengeance isn't wrong. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. And uh, precisely, David was kept from the sin of doing vengeance himself. And then when God's vengeance comes upon his enemy, David rejoices. Uh, completely biblical, completely appropriate. Nothing wrong with this at all. Um, if you're with us in the Sunday morning study of Revelation, you're going to see that this is God, the, the response of God's people when God enacts vengeance upon the wicked is we, we rejoice because it's justice done, it's uh, the godly avenged. 
All right, uh, the Lord has returned the evil of Nabal, David says, on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife, uh, which of course he's quite taken with her and quite taken with the way that she uh, had interacted with him, her wisdom in a very difficult position, her acting as an intermediary, her, her suing for peace. I mean, all of these things are very Davidic, very much like David himself. And, you know, I don't, again, who knows? Um, but there's also a sense in which he is doing her a kindness and a, and a graciousness to take her, uh, socially speaking, things were so different in that day than they are for us today. But um, he's, he's becoming her provider and she's not going to be uh, left on her own to sort this mess out, and who knows what will become of her. David takes her into his protection as a wife. Um, of course, problematic uh, from our vantage point is he is already uh, uh, married to uh, Michal. Um, we're going to see that that's, that's got its own problems. Um, but this is, uh, so you've got this Old Testament recurrent uh, polygamy that happens. And again, just to be, just to be very clear, it's, it's not in accordance with God's plan from the beginning. Jesus makes this very clear um, in regards to divorce, but the principle holds then against polygamy, that the two become one flesh. And so polygamy, it, while, while, it is, uh, while it's sinful and a sinful condition of man, um, it does happen biblically amongst the patriarchs and um, is even described in some respects as a gift or a gift from God, uh, which is a difficult theological point. I mean, no doubt about it. It's like within a fallen, sinful world where things don't go as they ought, um, the, Lord, the Lord even still blesses even in the midst of this evilness and brokenness and sin. And so that's probably the, the most simple way to reconcile that. But it is, you know, it is, it is part of the text. It's part of the tension here. So David at this point then has uh, Michal, Saul's daughter, and Abigail, the, uh, the widow of Nabal. Verse 40, when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as, as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So, I mean, this is another reason why I just can't help but see her as a type of the church. Um, this is, so not only does she say yes to David's proposal, the way the church says yes to Christ, um, but also look at the humility, not just the servant to wash the feet of David, but the servant to wash the feet of David's servants. You know, and that's just such, I mean, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. This is such an expression of humility and such a, an expression of a feminine power. I mean, I, I tell for one minute David's going to have her washing the feet of his servants, but ironically, precisely because that's her heart. Because that's her heart and because that's her humility, I could just about guarantee that David never actually let that happen. I mean, she, it is precisely that humility and that willingness that makes her such a treasure. And then this is completely uh, similar to the church. 
I mean, we love because God first loved us, and in loving Him, we serve His servants. That's precisely what the church is called to do. So I, I see uh, Abigail as a type of, of the church here. And of course, uh, you know, in, in terms of the foot washing, we've talked about the close connection between Christ and his church, and Christ washes the disciples' feet. And so you can see Abigail as type of Christ, type of church, uh, embodiment of feminine beauty and, and power, I, all of these things. She is just a remarkable, remarkable character in the scriptures, as you can see. So if you're, if you're looking for a, a, your daughter's name, can't go wrong with Abigail. All right. Verse 42. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Okay, so here you've got the third, and I won't rehash what I just spent rehashing a moment ago about the morality of all of that and how to think about it, but in terms of narrative, pardon me for drinking my coffee, um, but in terms of narrative, uh, Michal is, is back in Saul's house. David has basically been out on his own, now there's Abigail and uh, Ahinoam, and so they're actually out in the wilderness with him in this quote-unquote new life he's, he's living as an exile. So in terms of the narrative, important to keep that in mind. Now verse 44, we get this twisted part of the story. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Now, this brings to mind, of course, the treachery of Saul with his first daughter, where he offered uh, her to David. David did everything, and then at the last minute, Saul gives his first daughter away in marriage. You also have to understand, maybe I should say this too, like the social customs and mores are so different then and in this place than they are than they are here in the West today. I mean, women just didn't, you didn't have a choice. You were going, I mean, women were treated as property. They were treated as, at best, they were kind of treated as contracts. That's how marriage was. They were treated as property. They had no authority. They knew they had no authority. And to be quite honest with you, that was backed up with, with an entire society where a woman couldn't make a living on her own, couldn't strike out and be independent, but was completely dependent upon the males and the headship of a male. Um, and, then, and then I don't mean to be in any way condoning this, but it was just backed by violence. That's what it was backed by. Um, it, so a, a woman, if she, was, if she was not going to be submissive, would have been made to be submissive. Uh, so, so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. But this, is the, this helps to contextualize some of this. And it helps to contextualize, too, where David, we, we can't see in the patriarchs the way we would see polygamy today, which is just like an expression of men's lust. That's not exactly what's going on with the patriarchs. I'm not saying that maybe there wasn't a, you know, that here or there. We shouldn't, you know, we should fully exonerate that or something. I'm not, I'm not making that argument. Just making the argument that it's so very different. We should be careful lest we cast stones, lest we just assume that these are, you know, 
lustful grabs uh, done simply for the sake of, of sexual greed or something like that. There's way more going on. Okay, and then um, Saul does give uh, Michal over to David. Michal chooses David over Saul. So there is, I think there's a lot to be read into this line. We're going to get more data down, down the ways here, but I mean, there's a lot to be read into this line. This, this one line, Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who is of Galim. I mean, there's a lot going on there. This, that had to have been revenge and vengeful and evil on the part of Saul, no doubt. It, in all likelihood, from what we know of the narrative heretofore, it probably broke, uh, broke Michal's heart. She chose David and was loyal to David over Saul. It probably broke David's heart. David, uh, again, in the narrative heretofore in 1 Samuel, there's no reason to believe David had anything but love uh, for Michal and knew her loyalty very well. So this is a treacherous, wicked thing. Uh, Saul is here to blame. Uh, Michal likely had no choice in the matter. Uh, you know, that's really my point um, in part in bringing up that sort of background and history as well as then seeing David taking Ahinoam and um, Abigail. You know, these are, like, like if we're just looking at, looking at it the way we would look at it today, we're, we're not going to see it as it actually was in context. Okay, so this is a mess, and yeah, it kind of foreshadows the messiness to come with David's family, that to be sure, that to be sure. Okay, on to chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekelah, which is on the east of Jeshimon. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Okay, well, David's got about 600 men, so it's about five to one. David's kind of got this ragtag group of outcasts. Uh, Saul has 3,000 chosen men. Verse 3, and Saul encamped on the hill of Hekelah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. All right, so why mention Abner here? Because Abner is the, is the commander, and as we'll see, Abner is, is a man not to be trifled with. But, but Abner, of all people, his bodyguard, uh, the preeminent commander and military man, in Israel at this point, is sleeping right next to Saul to keep him safe. The whole army's around Saul to keep him safe, and this is what David sees. Okay, so that's the point of the setup here. Verse 6, Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai the son of Zeruiah, 
who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. Ah, the spear that he tried to use against David a couple of times and against Jonathan at least once, maybe more. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. We heard the same thing when David and his men were in the cave and Saul came in to relieve himself. They said, God has given him into your hand. Whew. Here, you see, here you see the extreme obedience and faithfulness of David. I mean, what could be more obvious to the eye and pleasing to the ear than, than this reality and to just seize upon it and put all your troubles away forever? Like, that's it. Just get it done. Uh, your enemies put away. But David will not do it. Not the first time and not the second time. And his rationale we're going to get is just so wonderful. It's like life and death is God's business. I'm not going to touch his anointed. Um, it, when he wants his anointed to be put away, he's, God is going to put him away. So this is incredible faithfulness and obedience, humility and respect on the part of David. Okay, so... Uh, Abishai says, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth. Like, David, I know you don't want to do it. I'm going to do it. Please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. I mean, the sentiment here is like, look, he's not going to suffer any more than he needs to. One stroke, not two. Like, we're just going to get this done right now as efficiently as possible. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? I, I, you know, one thing that's striking, I, this language, of course, of anointed is the Mashiach, the Messiah language. Who can put out his hand against the Lord's Messiah and be guiltless? David's not willing to do that. How, how ironic and how wicked then that uh, the high priests, the Pharisees and rulers of the people of Israel at the time of Jesus, I, I mean, indeed, put out their hand against the Lord's Messiah in such cruel and vicious ways, slapping him, spitting on him, mocking him, having him scourged, having him crucified and nailed and the crown of thorns and the spear and all of it. I mean, con contrast that to the, to the quote-unquote uh, Hebrew heart of David uh, that, that will not uh, put out his hand against the Lord's Messiah and then the, the Hebrew heart that is in those who receive the true Messiah, Jesus, and it's completely the opposite of David. All right, verse 10, And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Like, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands, and neither are you, um, you know, as well-intentioned as Abishai is here. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, for his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. 
the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Again, literally against the Lord's Messiah. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So, no doubt about it, this was a miraculous event and occurrence that Abner, as well as the whole army, I mean, even if everybody's asleep, you'd assume that there'd be guards or uh, some kind of, you know, lookout. Uh, but everybody's asleep. And they're so asleep that David can take his time with Abishai. They can even have this conversation, I mean, whispered and hushed as it probably was. Uh, and everybody stays asleep. This is clearly the hand of the Lord doing this thing. We have seen over and over again, by the way, I, it's worth pointing out because I probably have failed to point this out as we've gone along. But we have seen over and over and over again the Lord's mercy to Saul and granting Saul more time and time to repent and uh, David does good to him, and it's an opportunity for Saul to, if not repay good with good, at least not repay evil, at least just be done with it. But Saul has insisted upon pursuing the evil course. And so here's yet one more opportunity, I mean, one more mercy of the Lord God towards Saul. No doubt about it, we know the heart of our Lord, that Saul would return to the Lord, that Saul would genuinely repent and be forgiven and and even though he's lost temporally, I mean, even though he's cursed temporally to lose the, the kingship and it's going to pass from his house, so what? His soul could still be saved. And at this point, it seems quite evident that, that that's what the Lord is after. In all of these mercies, so many mercies towards Saul, and there too, we can all think in, our, in terms of our lives. I, I think we can, if we ponder and contemplate the person of Saul rightly, I mean, there's certainly a sense in which we can hate and despise him, but there's also a sense in which we've got to recognize the Saul that is in our own sinful hearts, in our own fallen nature, and to recognize the countless times that God has shown us mercy, and where we have done for evil, God has repaid our evil with good, and where we have cried out with our sins and our godlessness for God's vengeance to be enacted upon us. God has shown mercy. So we see the profound long-suffering and patience of God towards Saul over and over again, here embodied in, in David's second great mercy toward Saul, where literally Saul's life is in David's hands and David spares him. God spares him. All right, verse 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Now, why to Abner? Well, Abner is Saul's cousin, okay, but, but he's, David is so respectful of the anointed, of Saul, that he's not going to in any way jeer at Saul. He's going, to, he's going to speak harshly to Abner. So David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? I mean, in other words, yeah, I mean, like challenging him, like, 
he's obviously the, the greatest in, in terms of military prowess in all of Israel. Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the King? For one of the people came in to destroy the King your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. So this is why David took those things. As this is exactly parallel to cutting off the piece of uh, Saul's robe. It's proof that his life was in his hands. Um, so too then the spear and the jar of water. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? This was David's same appeal as earlier. For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But, but if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, and I should have no sh- uh, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other, uh, other gods. That's what these men are saying in exiling David. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea. Here you see David's self-deprecation again. It's just like the last time. These are parallel events. A single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Like you're wasting, like why would you expend all this energy on um, a partridge, on a bird, on me? Someone who's not doing anything wrong to you and is harmless to you. All right, well, David, just as before, David's sermon is heard by Saul, and Saul, uh, in big air quotes, repents. But as before, so now, all the repentance is, uh, if it's genuine at all, it's the most short-lived repentance there ever was. And in fact, it probably isn't genuine. I, I mean, in the same way that Cain repents with tears, but he isn't really repentant, the same way Judas repents and throws the money back at the high priest but isn't really repentant. So here Saul, you know, puts on a good show but isn't really repentant. Unfortunately, I mean, would that he would be repented, would that this would be the end of it and he would relent and return to the Lord and lose his kingship but gain an everlasting kingship. But that's not how it goes for Saul. So, verse 21, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. You know, in other words, come on home, because that's what David is saying. It's like, look, you've driven me out, and I'm going to die outside of, you know, the promised land, and away from, from the heritage of the Lord, away from his temple. So Saul's saying, come back, you know. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, 
and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Now, this may strike one as strange, but what David is actually saying is like, I hear your repentant voice, Saul, um, but I'm going to commend myself not to you, that you would repay me good. I'm going to commend myself to God, that God would repay me good. I've done this service unto him. I have had mercy upon you because you are an anointed of the Lord. And so I don't want anything from you, Saul. Um, what I want is from the Lord. And so, I mean, again, just beautiful, expressive piety. And so that Saul, in, who, who tends to see everything pragmatically, politically, um, like what's your angle in this? David, David flat out says, I'm not playing that game. There is, no, there is no game I'm playing with you. There is no quid pro quo, no bartering, no back scratching. I don't want anything from you. Um, my service is to the Lord and my reward is from the Lord. And this is just such a beautiful statement of faith. Such a beautiful statement of faith. And so foundational to what becomes the New, the New Testament concept of, it's not really the New Testament concept, of course, but it's so well articulated in the New Testament. And that's this idea of vocation. That our, that, that our service in our various vocations, whether it's father or mother or husband or wife or uh, worker or master or son or daughter, our vocations are done to people, but they're not done to people. They're done unto the Lord. That's properly speaking. So, you know, the proper way to understand it is in fulfilling your marital obligation or your parental obligation, you're first and foremost serving the Lord and only secondarily then serving the person. In fact, you can only rightly serve the person when you understand that your service isn't to them as such. Otherwise, they become your God. Your service is to God and then it is rightly ordered toward that person. So this is a, it's like a major, major theme of uh, vocation, and David spells that out like right here. Like my loyalty isn't so much to you, Saul, it's to the Lord's anointed. My, loyal, my goodness toward you is directly um, the consequence of my loyalty to God. That's uh, beautiful expression, beautiful expression of, uh, of Christian vocation. Okay, so uh, where did we leave off? Verse 25, probably. Verse 24, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. May he, del may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Verse 25, Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. All right, uh, chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. <laughs> so David, who is right there, doesn't buy Saul's crocodile tears for one, for one second. And he says in his heart, I know better than this. I'm not entrusting myself to this guy. I know I'm going to perish one day by the hand of Saul, so uh, there is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. 
Now, of course, this, this took place before, um, back in chapter, uh, I think it's 21. And so, uh, once again, David, you know, is sick of the wilderness. He's sick of Saul pursuing him out there. He's, doesn't, he's not safe in the bounds of Israel. He's not safe in the, on the sidelines in the wilderness. So he's going to go back and, and pursue a relationship with the Philistines. That's what he decides. Now, this is a bit ambiguous in the text. And, and you can look at this if this really intrigues you. Go ahead and, you know, skim through the study notes in the Lutheran service by, or the Lutheran study Bible. It's a little bit ambiguous. Is this the right thing that David should do or not? Um, who knows? Who knows? Would it have been better to just trust in the Lord and remain in the wilderness? Would it have been better to trust in the Lord and go back into Israel? Or would it have been better to, to go off and get in this really perilous relationship with the sworn enemies of God's people, the Philistines? And, and then you'll see kind of the deceit and danger that transpires. So it's one of the, it's one of the kind of the mysteries and one of the thought-provoking things, as so many of these texts have had in their background. is like, you know, is this the right thing to do or not? So with that in mind, um, just finishing out verse 1, then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So in other words, if I'm firmly there with the Philistines, he's not going to come bother me. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. Um, Let's pause there and just drop down to the study note. Let's see. The study note on verse 1, Although David knew he had been anointed king, he could not bear the constant hide-and-seek existence in the wilderness for his family and small army. Given his early ex- earlier experience with the Philistines, chapter 21, verses 10 through 15, He was courageous to return there, but this time he arrived with a small army. Uh, If you remember earlier, David got in such hot water, he had to pretend to be mad, and then they (laughs) they cast him out. So this is really kind of a bold move to decide to return. But now he's got a small army. I mean, how on earth earth did, did he go from mad to having a small army? Well, the Philistines just had to deal with that, I guess. So he arrived with a small army. Unlike earlier, the Philistines would now be aware of Saul's hostility toward David, which may have contributed to the welcome David received. And I think that that's quite plausible. That is probably why they received him. They saw him as an, as an enemy to their sworn enemies. David's move again demonstrates the awkward and enigmatic relationship between the Israelites and Philistines. Right, and we'll see that in spades. We'll see that in spades, particularly as um, this Akish guy, I mean, ends up saying some really weird things like, like swearing upon the name of the Lord, like as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, taking this upon his lips. It's a really, really strange dynamic. I think awkward and enigmatic is exactly right. The study note's quite right here. Okay, the study note also says... Um, on Akish regarding to this name, because this does show up back in 21, whether this is the Akish of chapter 21 is uncertain. He may be a son. 
the amount of time between chapters 21 and 27 is unclear. So yet one more instance where 1 Samuel is not the chronological history that, if you're like me, in my mind, you always return to this idea of, well, this is a historical book. It must be interested in chronology and probably dry chronology at that. And then you get into the text and you realize how entirely thematic and topical and wonderful it is. It's anything but dry history. Uh, but then part of that is uh, the challenge of figuring out any kind of timeline or, or accurate chronology. And so the study note says we don't know how much time passed. It's not clear. All right, uh, that takes us through verse 2. He has, uh, David has come over with his 600 men to Achish. Verse 3, and David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Ah, so what do we learn from that verse? Saul was already actively seeking him, um, even after his crocodile tears and full repentance. Verse 5, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Now, if you drop down to the study note, Ziklag is a border town between Philistine and Israelite territory, originally given to Simeon, but uh, likely at this time in the hands of the Philistines. Achish may have given the town to David to establish an outpost of power and order in an unruly region. You can see chapter 30, verse 1 to that effect. According to custom, all such grants were permanent. So Ziklag uh, becomes a crown property and thereafter belonging specifically to the kings of Judah as a result of this gift, which I'd find that study note... Uh, Ironic, because this land belongs, is already given to the Israelites, and just because the Philistines have taken it and now returned it, I mean, it's already, by divine right, David's and Israel's. So I find all of that rather ironic. Be that as it may, therefore, back in the text, finishing out verse 6, therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the kings, or excuse me, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the uh, Jeremielites, 
or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines, and Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. All right, well, I'll leave it to you in the footnotes to, to dig out the specifics here, but in, in broad strokes here, what's going on is David is telling Achish, I'm out raiding Israelite villages and encampments. In fact, he's out raiding uh, non-Israelite uh, camps and villages. So these are nomadic people um, and, and often people who would sweep in and plunder uh, both, the, you know, both the Judean and Philistine uh, towns. So you know, he's taking them out and there may have even been some alliances there, so it's there's because there's ra there's rationale, there's reason why David does not want to just come clean. He says he's making raids on Judah, and instead he's, uh, you know, he's going after these other people groups, some of whom may have been, yeah, some of whom may have been. Um, allies or partners with uh, the Philistines. David's responses then to, Akshish, to his Akshish's questions were deliberately misleading, the study note says, and that's exactly right. So, you know, and that, and that too is, is motivation. It might even be the primary motivation, assuming that the Philistines don't care if he's raiding these others, then what is David doing? Um, David's building this rapport with Achish that he is, in fact, an enemy of Israel and to be trusted by the Philistines. Okay, and then maybe one final point to make as, as the minutes close and as we're at the end of chapter 27. It's a nice cutoff and break. So um, maybe the last point, Achish's boldness here, um, he has made himself, David has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. The study note points out that this literally is a slave of eternity. <laughs> so you, you sense some of the, the arrogant nature and the, the paganism here of Achish, the Philistine, uh, the ruler of Gath. And so, uh, yeah, we've got quite the setup there for then what comes next. Because what comes next is the Philistines come against Saul and Israel, and that throws Saul in a panic, and that also means a potential difficulty for David. Well, let's get into chapter 28 next week. The Lord be with you.